but some things happened with the stock. The controlling shareholder decided that they would take on a lot of debt and buy back a lot of stock. And some things related to that, I think, helped it get to a very high price. And then it sort of was sort of to too high a price and it kind of popped from there. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Women Building Wealth Membership Group, the complete proven step-by-step course to guide women from novice to confident investor. To learn more, go to womenbuildingwealth.net. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, are you ready to rock? Yep. All right. Well, let me tell the audience about you. Jeff is a portfolio manager, podcaster, and investment writer. He manages accounts at Focus Compounding Capital Management, and he co-hosts the Focus Compounding Podcast with Andrew Kuhn. And ladies and gentlemen, you should listen up. I was just listening to the latest episode talking about the margin of safety and chapter 20 of Intelligent Investor. Now, Jeff started writing and podcasting about value investing in 2005 at the ripe young age of 19. Since then, Jeff has written hundreds of articles for Seeking Alpha and Guru Focus. He wrote the Gannon on Investing newsletter in 2006 and two Guru Focus letters, newsletters from 2010 until 2012. In 2013, he co-founded Singular Diligence, a monthly investment newsletter with Quan Huang and authored all issues from 2013 to 2016. He truly is a writer, ladies and gentlemen. In 2017, he co-founded the Focus Compounding member website with Andrew Kuhn. And in 2018, he co-founded Focus Compounding Capital Management, where he manages client accounts. Lastly, in September of 2019, Jeff and Andrew announced their partnership with Willow Oak Asset Management, a subsidiary of Enterprise Diversified, to launch a hedge fund with a target launch date of January 1st, 2020. That's exciting. Jeff, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Sure. So I got started in investing as a teenager. As soon as I, uh, I I went to college for about a semester or so, and then I dropped out of college and decided that what I wanted to do was something related to investing and related to writing, especially. So I started writing about investing. Blogs were fairly new at that point. Certainly podcasts were very new at that point. And I started doing that and freelance writing for sites like Guru Focus and it was a job at Guru Focus that brought me to Texas. I moved across the country from New Jersey to Texas. And then since that, I think your bio pretty much covered it. Fantastic. And just give the audience a little tidbit about the way you write. Do you write a little at a time? Do you write an outline first? Do you lock yourself in a room? Do you go to another location? What's your writing method? Usually I don't outline anything. It's about a topic that I hopefully know very well or else I wouldn't be writing about it. So it's important to pick the right topic. But as long as you pick a topic you know a lot about, then it's just writing it straight through. And it usually is a matter of a few hours of writing straight through about it and revise it then. And then it's ready for publication pretty much right away after that. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to us and then tell us your story. 
Okay, so my worst investment ever was a personal investment, which was also written about in that newsletter that you talked about, Singular Diligence. And it was early on, it was one of the very first issues of, of that newsletter. So that would have been the newsletter was in 2013, it started, so it was probably right around then. And the stock was Weight Watchers. So it was a stock that was already down a bunch. I had followed it before because I'd followed stocks like Nutrisystem, which is a competitor. And I had always seen these different weight loss stocks and thought that Weight Watchers was the best of them for a lot of different reasons. But it always traded at too high a price, you know, so I couldn't feel that I could buy it. I'm a value investor. I like to pay a low price for things. But some things happened with the stock. The controlling shareholder decided that they would take on a lot of debt and buy back a lot of stock. And some things related to that, I think, helped it get to a very high price. And then it sort of was sort of to too high a price. And it kind of popped from there, you know. And probably because of that, it dropped maybe more than I thought it should. And suddenly I was looking at it and it was as cheap as some of these other competitors, which I thought were never as good as Weight Watchers, didn't have the brand name or any of that stuff. So I was excited about the opportunity to buy a company that I'd wanted to buy, but had never been at, a, at the right price. So at that point, it probably dropped more than 50% from its high. And I got interested in the stock then. And like I said, I had read about the company before. I had read their filings and things like that because I'd looked at competitors. But I never remembered a time when the stock was cheap enough for me to buy. So this is the opportunity to do it. And I needed a stock to write about, obviously, also for the newsletter. I was doing one right up a month about that stuff. So the natural thing to do is start researching it for the newsletter. And then as you get interested in it, you sort of order it. So your best idea is the first one that you put out there. And, and then you buy it after you personally, when you decided that this is something you want to write about for your newsletter. And that's what I did. And I, I was working on that with Quan, uh, who was the, he researched on the newsletter. He didn't write it, but he researched with me on it. And he was also very interested in the stock because he had researched stocks like that before. He had passed on Nutrisystem in part because he thought this isn't as good a business as Weight Watchers. So it was around the time when we were going to come out with the newsletter issue for it that the company cut its dividend and did all these other things that caused the stock to even go down even further. And at that point, it was certainly a very heavily shorted stock. A lot of people were betting against it. And you start to see uh, short write-ups about the stock. There may have been one at Value Investors Club. There was certainly one at different sites that I would read those sorts of things. So I, I read several of those things about it. And in fact, I remember I had a person email me because I talked about the stock somewhat as I talk about all the stocks I'm interested in, kind of just using it as an example, talking about it in general with people and, and things like that, even before it would appear in the newsletter. And one of these people said to me, you know, oh, I'm very interested in getting a free sample of the newsletter, but I just want to make sure it's not an issue with Weight Watchers in it because they were concerned that I'd be <laughs> writing up Weight Watchers and they weren't interested in that. So a lot of people were already very worried about it and it was, you know, a controversial stock at that point. But I liked the price on it. And it had all the things about a business that I, I like and that I'm used to seeing very high returns on capital, very good free cash flow. It had more debt than companies that I like usually do. But the debt wasn't because of the business. It was because they had this basically private equity type firm that was really controlling it. And so they just thought that's what you do. You leverage it up five times EBITDA or something in debt. That's natural for them. And so that's what they did. And they had just done whatever I said a year or so before they put on a lot of debt onto it to buy back a lot of stock. And that's when I bought it and wrote about it in the newsletter. And so the interesting thing about it is 
that would have been six years ago or so now. And if you look at a chart of the stock, you'll see that the price I bought it at and the price it's at today are probably the same. But it's the journey of what happened between there that is the interesting part. So it was at that time of writing about the newsletter stuff, it was in the 30s per share. The stock price was like, say, $32, $33, something like that. And over the next year or so, it would decline. I believe the lowest price it ever hit was probably around $4 or something. I remember talking to a lot of people through emails and things talking to me about it. Should I sell out and things like that? And I said, well, they said, you know, are you sure that it's safe now that it won't go into bankruptcy and things like that? I said, I'm not sure that it's safe, but I can do the math and see that at $4, you have to be, you know, whatever it was at the time, 80% or 90% sure that it will end up to be worthless to say you should sell now at this lower price. That's the problem. You know, I could tell that it had become much riskier stock because of big declines in their subscriber numbers. But the problem is the price dropped even faster than that. So it was too cheap to sell on the, on the probabilities looking at it, you know. And I got lots of emails from people who were very worried about it and had followed me into it, obviously. And in some cases, I had one or two people who emailed me almost daily about it, asking my opinions about it. Anytime they'd find something out, they'd read somewhere or something about it. Because remember, it was being shorted. So there was a lot of things, whether people were putting out information because they wanted to, the price to go down or just because they like to talk about it and, and those sorts of things. You were seeing more write-ups of negative things about it than you would in a stock that no one was short. You know, and, normally- And, would, I, and I would yeah. say that, would it be correct to say that, you know, you don't have any knowledge of the sizing of the position of the people who are following. And so therefore, for some man or woman who doesn't really understand risk management, they may have put a huge amount of their net worth in it. And so really, it's a panic situation, as opposed to a more professional person may have said, put 5% into it. Yes, it's hurting, but you know, Right. That's true. I didn't know what size the position was for them. In some cases, I wrote about many different stocks over the time of the newsletter, but for some people, they might pick out that particular one. I would say that to some people, the fact it had a lot of debt and things like that attracted them because it had more, seemed to have more upside. Although there were other things that I chose that had more downside protection. Most of them would have been things that didn't have any debt. So I think that's always part of it. And I should also say it was interesting is that I was starting to get emails from people who read what I wrote, but now didn't buy at the same time that I did or that it was written up by me originally. They were now discovering it a year or so later. In fact, I know one person bet very big on it and talked to me about it when he saw that it dropped to nearly $4 or something like that. And he read it and he, he read the write-up that I did at you know $30 or something. And he looked at it and he thought, well, that's a good write-up. I agree with a lot of those things. Some things bad happen, but now it's down. So it's so cheap that you know now I'll, I'll want to buy it. And he did. And he made quite a lot of money on it that way. So it really did depend on where you got in and where you got out on that as the outcomes for people who bought into the stock. In some cases, several of them based on the exact same thing I wrote up were very different. Some people got in at the same price that I did. So, and some people held on longer than others. And, and then you have some people who got in much later, but based on things that I had written and they said, oh, this is a, you know, this is a good stock to buy now that the price is so low. Now they were buying it thinking it's very speculative, but they just thought the price is so cheap now that it's a good opportunity. So it did get down to around $4 or whatever. And it would rise a little bit over time with that. But what really changed things is an announcement by Weight Watchers that Oprah was partnering with them. And so Oprah Winfrey was going to take a lot of options in the stock and join the board. 
and she would become their new spokesperson. And that was huge for the stock. Probably people were short the stock, weren't happy at that point. The stock suddenly started going up quite a lot. I ended up selling at I think $17 or something like that, about let's say half or so, so about a 50% loss for me I think over that time period. And, but I believe the stock would go up to over a hundred dollars at some point. So this is a stock that obviously, if you think about it, if you bought at the price that I wrote it up for the newsletter and everything, people who bought that day and then had the bad timing to sell at the worst point, lost about 90% of their investment. And people who bought, held on, and then sold at the very best point would have tripled their money, right? Now, do I think anyone exactly did either of those things? No, I don't think that anyone really picked the very worst day to sell out. And I'm sure that no one watched it fall all the way from 32 to four or something and then back over 100. But that gives you an idea of how huge the price changes were in the stock and how different the outcomes were for people based on when they bought in, even if they had the same sort of ideas about the company. And I'm curious, what was driving your exit at 17? Right. So the company had, to my mind, really serious credit issues. Now, it turned out that it was okay because it was kind of a good time in the credit cycle because going out from 2013 towards today, credit kind of was pretty loose and it was getting easier for companies with a lot of debt to refinance and stuff. And, and I should say the company was always a very good company. It was always a leader in, in its industry. It was always the biggest by scale. The brand name was always good. It had a big decline in subscribers because of new apps coming out. So things like MyFitnessPal and stuff like that. People were, women, my Weight Watchers is 90% or so women, were experimenting with those things because they were free. And they try a lot of different diets, but the thing with Weight Watchers always is people come back to it. And so some people would try it four or five times during their life and you know they would have better results with it, but it's harder to do and it costs money compared to trying something out that's, that's cheaper and might work too. And so people do always try those other things and it's hard to be free you know, and, and easy that it's right there on your phone. So that was a huge thing where, where people for a year or more, a couple of years really, but especially one particular year, they were very hard for them to get new signups. And so that caused a decline in their subscriber numbers and they had this huge debt to cover. And so I was very worried from the time that they had a big subscriber decline because earnings decline, but you can also see that if their subscribers are down 20% this year or something, then you know revenue is going to be down 20% or more next year. You can already tell a whole year out that way. And so I could see what the debt situation was and that they were going to need to refinance a lot of debt. While they would be able to pay interest out of their free cash flow, they were still consistently free cash flow positive and all that. If they had to refinance, I was very worried. And they were not borrowing long at all. So they were going to have to refinance. Now, after the Oprah thing, that became a lot easier, mm. right? But that was always a concern. And it was a concern even when the stock was very cheap. Of course, if they could, they would probably issue a lot of stock. That was one way to try to raise a lot of money if they needed to with the debt that they had. Because, you know, if you thought you were targeting debt of, let's say, five times EBITDA or something, and then your EBITDA goes down, if your EBITDA at the bottom goes down 50%, you suddenly have debt of 10 times EBITDA. And are you going to be able to refinance at those levels? You know, mm. it's one thing to have that amount of debt if you have bonds that are 30 years and, you know, mm, mm. but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about bank debt that they would need to refinance very quickly. So, so, so let, me, let me just ask one other question about this stock is that if the company had not had taken on an excessive amount of debt, if they had kept it pretty reasonable and low, yeah. uh, how would that have changed the trajectory of the performance of that company or of that stock? 
Hugely. So, you know, I talked about, I think the high, so the high was probably in the eighties or something in a stock price where they had done the big borrowing and buyback. And then it dropped to the thirties or something where I bought it dropped from there to four or something. Honestly, it's likely that the drop from 80 to half of that to 40 or 30 or something might've happened whether it had debt or not, but all the rest of it is debt. You had something that instead of dropping by 50% from top to bottom, along the lines more of their EBITDA, their sales and things like that. I mean, the, the companies. Like I said, I mean, the free cash flow never went negative. It didn't really lose money. I mean, it may have if it wrote off some things or something, you know, for a particular year or quarter that I don't remember exactly what the headline number was, but it really didn't lose money on a continuing basis at any point there. And so it was all because of the debt that way. And certainly when I was trading very close to zero was because of concerns about the debt. And that's, those are valid because at about the low point, it was just covering in terms of having enough to pay bondholders without needing other resources from that. It didn't keep a lot of cash on hand and stuff. So it was going to get to the point where it would start burning cash if something didn't turn around. So it was a really big credit risk that way. And that's what I was concerned about. And I would say that explains, you know, easily half of the decline. You're talking about a stock that from top to bottom might have fallen 50% if it had no debt, but instead fell, you know, 95% or, or more. Yeah. Got it. All right. So what lessons did you learn from this experience? Well, I learned a couple lessons. I'd say three lessons, really. This is a combination of three things that are bad to have in combination. One, the biggest one is the debt, right? So the huge amount of debt. But the truth is that there are, for instance, airports in the, in the world that are publicly traded that carry the same amount of debt as, as the Weight Watchers was. And I don't think that it's necessarily, they're not incredibly safe, but I don't think that they're taking a huge risk by doing that. But I think that that's because that's a lot more predictable than whether people will sign up again for dieting. And this is where I made a very big mistake, which is that dieting is sort of like the opposite of an addictive product like tobacco or something like that. You see this with gyms, you see this with dieting. People want to do it, it's good for them, but it's hard to keep doing it. And so they do eventually quit, even though it might be in their long-term interest not to. Just as people go back to drinking and smoking and things, even though they know they, they shouldn't. And so from a business perspective, unfortunately, companies that sell cigarettes and alcohol and those sorts of things often are more predictable than companies that sell dieting things and, and gyms and, and things that might be healthier, but it's harder for someone to keep doing. And I knew that the average Weight Watchers a member only stayed with the diet for about nine months or so. There was research on that. And actually, that's quite a bit longer than a lot of competing diets. So actually, studies showed that their advantage was purely that people stay on the diet longer. And uh, that, that was why. And does this mean that if they get customer acquisition wrong in one year yes. or something that all of a sudden, wow, it has a huge impact that, that's a lasting impact that takes right. time to recover from? Absolutely. It's huge. And uh, particularly seasonally. So the big time for them is people signing up in the first quarter of the year. They run ads around Christmas and New Year's for people's New Year's resolutions and all of that. And so if they miss in terms of having a spokesperson that isn't clicking with people, or as in this case, there were these new apps that were coming out and there was a buzz around something else. A big thing that I had missed and shouldn't have missed was years ago, there had been an, a diet called the Atkins diet. And it was a big hit for only about a year in terms of with the, the general public being huge. It was around for longer than that. It still exists today. But it became this huge phenomenon beyond anything that any diet had been before for about a year. But it did a huge amount of damage to the business of Weight Watchers for that year. And if the company had a lot of debt at that moment and, and I had 
been a shareholder in it then, it might have had a lot of problems too. But because of the history of the company, although I could see those financials, I couldn't see that reflected in the stock price and things like that because it had, it had been a, a part of a company, Heinz actually, and then it, private equity had taken it out of that and then gradually taken it public. And so I didn't have a stock performance going back all that time and those sorts mm-hmm. of things. But I knew from research that I did that it did decline a lot with the Atkins diet. But the mistake I made with that is I thought, oh, well, that's a one-time thing, you know. And in reality, it's probably more that once every 10 years, there's some incredible diet fad that becomes a huge thing. And you have to be prepared for those sorts of things that maybe nine out of 10 years is a normal year, but one out of 10 years, there'll be something that, you know, um, comes and, and suddenly people are doing this other diet. I mean, there've been many different diet fads before. So you and should that's expect a, that. That's a hard thing because the hardest part of that is when you're in the middle of it, trying to determine yourself whether this is that damaging fad right, or absolutely. something really small and not, not worth worrying mm-hmm. about. <laughs> yeah. And that's what happened. I looked at it and thought, you know, what are the, the rates in terms of what people are using this, these new things, these new apps. And, and I had, and I did some research on those sorts of things. And what I found a lot of it was very encouraging, to be honest, but, but with the debt combination and the operating leverage of the business. So the business, you know, if it has, if it loses a million subscribers, it's good, a million members, it's going to have a much bigger decline in terms of its earnings than it does in terms of its sales, because it doesn't cost them that much to run a group that has 10 people in it instead of eight or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's just like a TV network or something where, you know, if it loses half of its audience, now it's not making any money, you know, and the same thing here. And so you had the financial leverage on top of the operating leverage. And like I said, if, if you have a great deal of high customer retention, if you have a monopoly or something like that, then that's safe. That's okay. You can do that. You can have a lot of operating leverage and a lot of debt. An airport has a lot of operating leverage and a lot of debt, but there's only one place in that area for people to fly through, you know? So you, you know that they're not suddenly going to stop flying this year, but you don't know that with, with dieting. And like I said, I did a lot of research and I found that, you know, in general, things like MyFitnessPal and, and those sorts of apps, people use them, but they did quit them very quickly. So it is true that people downloaded them in incredible numbers, but then when they were asked a few weeks later if they were still using them, an incredible number weren't still using them. So I could tell sort of that the business would get better in a few years or something like that, which if you're a shareholder in a stock with no debt, well, if it gets better in a few years, you can hold on and, and you'll live to tell about it, you know, but with a stock with a lot of debt, you're wondering, will they be able to refinance? Will they be able to do all these things that I need to make sure that the stock is worth it? I said to people when they ask, you know, is this the end of Weight Watchers or whatever? And I said, no, I'm sure the company will exist in the future. The brand will exist. The problem is it might end up in bankruptcy and the, the lenders are the ones who end up owning the new equity, not you, you know, <laughs> not me. Got so it. that was the danger there. Yeah. Okay. Let me summarize what I took away and then let me know if I missed anything. I think from my perspective, I want to really highlight the idea of debt. And I think, I mean, I had started a company with my best friend in in Bangkok, which we've operated for now 25 years. And as foreigners in, you know, in a a foreign land, we just knew right away that no bank was going to support us. You know, we just couldn't get that kind of support in the beginning. And so therefore we had to take the mentality that we must protect our capital and we must make sure not, you know, we're not going to get loans. Mm -hmm. And so we had to self-finance ourselves for a long time, which made me realize as, and then as an analyst analyzing companies, I saw that, you know, almost a huge amount of trouble comes to companies because of debt. 
And in fact, I would argue that it's probably the number one risk management issue that I look at is debt because it can, it creeps up. And when it, it doesn't cause a problem most of the time, but when it does, you can lose the equity in your business or you can lose the share value in the business that you are investing in. So debt is something that I am really, and I always tell a story about a friend of mine who has a business here in Thailand that's you know about a half a billion US dollars or more in market cap and he has 20% of his balance sheet is cash. And he's been very successful with that. So it goes against uh, you know the theory of lowering your cost of capital by bringing on debt but there are other advantages to not having debt such as you can get a you know you can basically you you can get better margins on your business because you can negotiate with your suppliers in a different way from most other companies and also you have cash when emergencies happen which means that ultimately you could potentially buy competitors and so he talked to me about that and taught me a lot about that when i was an analyst and um I think the other thing is that in risk management, a second thing is the idea of start slowly. And for those people who are somewhat beginners in investing or even, even intermediate or advanced, the idea is, is that when you find your idea, start to allocate to that idea in a step-by-step -step way. Now, that can be a painful thing if the stock's just going up and up and up. But there's a very big difference between owning a stock and not owning a stock. The emotional attachment is huge. And sometimes also there's immediate buyer's remorse buying anything where you look at something differently once you now own it. And so my, my other takeaway is, you know, build a position slowly, even if it's the best idea you've ever heard and you've done all your research. Those would be kind of the two main things that I would take away from it. Any thoughts? Yeah, I think that those make a lot of sense. I mean, the shame with Weight Watchers especially is that the company didn't need to have any debt on it. It was purely a financial engineering thing. Like I said, the approach of the main investor there is a, a private equity type approach. It was originally taken, bought from another company as a private equity deal and then taken public. But, but instead of exiting as most private equity companies do, they just stayed in it forever, but they would leverage it up. Many companies, of course, need to use debt because they need the money at certain points to, to build things and, and all of that. But this was nothing of the sort. They always produced their own free cash flow and didn't need it. So it's easy to think that it's a good business and to not pay enough attention to the debt in that case. And I think you're right, too, about the difference between what it feels like to not own the stock and to own it. And that's especially true also, I know from, I don't just have my own experience in this, but because, you know, I wrote about it and everything, I have a lot of information from people who, who emailed me and I can kind of, you know, chronicle their emotional journey through it too. And that was definitely a big part of it is they felt very differently about it once they were owning something that declined that much. Mm, yep. Okay. So based on what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? The one action that I would recommend they take is I would say if you're going to buy a company with debt, you're buying the stock, I would say that you want to spend some time thinking about the debt itself of whether it's a good investment or not. So start by saying to yourself, well, would I really invest in this debt? Is this safe? And if it's not, then maybe you don't want to invest in the stock. So, you know, by looking at that, if you decide, oh, well, these loans aren't safe enough. Well, if the loans aren't safe enough, you're behind the loans in terms of seniority. So maybe the stock isn't safe enough. That's what Got I would it. say. Yeah. That's a unique and great advice. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? 
My number one goal for the next 12 months is to have a successful launch of the fund. I have a new fund and that's just the thing that we'll see how it goes. But the first year is very important in terms of starting things off and I'm sure there'll be lots of difficulties with that, but you'd like to have a good first year. So I'm sure we're starting January 1st. So that would be a great goal is to have a good first 12 months. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning to find more stories like this Previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Jeff, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And let me just tell you that very few people are willing to come on this show and talk about their worst investment ever. And by doing so, you've taken your worst investment and turned it into something that we can all learn from. So thank you very much. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, thank you very much. It's a great concept and I'm really glad to talk about my worst investment and glad to hear other people talk about theirs. Great. Fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our risk, fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.